Welcome back to the Leatherbound Podcast. As always, you are joined by me, who is Ben, and him, who is Hunter. You are in for one heck of a show today. I'm really excited about this one because as Leatherbound, we are a podcast where two cousins tried to become better people by reading big books. And today, we mm. are going to be... Ben. Um, Hunter, you can't be constipated this early in the show. We just started. I've told you four oh, times no. now. Clear. It's nah. an audio seminary on moral improvement via literary masterpieces from the greatest authors, contemporary and historical. Did you hear that? I did. Oh, sorry, my that. head hit the ground. I, I woke back up just now. Oh, good. Probably scared any of our listeners who are driving in a car. Fun fact, Hunter. Uh, do you remember back in the day when Apple would just randomly give literally everyone in the world free music before streaming yes. services? Yes. So one of those free songs that Apple decided to give the entire world was a song by 30 Seconds to Mar Mars called Kings and Queens. I and remember it. Was it. In... Yes, great song. Mm -hmm. And it was in a video. They released the music video. So the only way you could listen was through the music video. I am right. driving with my dad and about three quarters of the way two-thirds of the way through the song, there's a biker who gets hit by a car and it has the whole like crashing yes. into a windshield sound effect. Yes. And I'm in the car after football practice. My awesome dad uh, was my football coach and he drove me to and from and we're on our way home. It's the middle of the night. We're kind of falling asleep and he let me DJ and I'm playing Kings and Queens. We're both kind of having a good time. And then that sound effect hits. He almost swerved off the road. We almost died. It was so intense. That's so yeah, I mean, scary. He's dude. driving, and then it's a sound of a car accident and someone right. hitting the windshield, and he's just like, ah! So, no so one always warn your dad is the moral of this story. <laughs> always use streaming services. Yeah. Um, hopefully, that was halfway interesting. Folks, yeah. today we are talking about the book Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. If you're just tuning in or haven't been listening much, this is the first season of Leatherbound, and the theme of this season is it is better to be righteous than it is to be right. And we've been hitting that with a, with a good smattering of books that are kind of all over the place so far. We've covered some books that are quite in support of that idea and some books that are accidentally in support of that idea. Mm. <laughs> and today we are covering a book, once again, that is very in support of that idea. G.K. Chesterton, if you've never heard of him, was he's often referred to as the C.S. Lewis to C.S. Lewis. He was born in 1874. He is English. And in, in my personal humble opinion, fantastic. Just really an excellent writer. And he, he has that quality of just pithy one-liners that I had come to associate with Lewis. And as I read Chesterton, I kind of realized where Lewis got a lot of his own style, which, which was just a blast. And Hunter, I'm going to give a a quick background on what this book was before we start talking about the points for anyone listening. Sure. Um, like I said, who hasn't been listening, we don't just do book reviews. We're going to talk about the biggest ideas that we see in the book. But Hunter, uh, before I do the review, what do you think of the book, man? How'd you enjoy it? I really, so before we go back, Ben, and we start discussing the book on the podcast, you and me usually take about a week to just kind of think through the points and kind of review our notes and kind of see what we thought about it. Um, just refreshing our memory because, you know, we're recording this probably a year or so after we've read this, something along those lines. Like, let's just say a year to six months, something in that timeline. And I was shocked after reading my notes about it, just how much um, this book meant to me and I had forgotten. Um, 
I think we'll actually get into that a little bit today. A lot of it has to do with the fact that the book is written in such a, I don't mean this any disrespect to Chesterton, because I do believe this is one of my favorite books, and in such an organized way. Um, and <laughs> I've blamed a little bit of that on the actual book that you and me have. It is quite an unwieldy monster. Uh, I mean the actual physical size of the book. I need um, to apologize for that, man. So no, no. I actually suggested to Hunter, I said, dude, there's a $3.50 copy on Amazon. It must <laughs> be on sale. Let's get it right now. And we both ordered yeah. it. And it's yeah. literally printer paper with some glue. It's really, it's really <laughs> awful. And like your eye completely loses its tract in the text and it, it's very difficult. But, but I also just think that the, the, the book itself is not written um, a to C to B or A to B to C, excuse me. Um, and I, I, I think that is somewhat on purpose. And I think that'll become, as we kind of delve into the, the writer that Chesterton was and where his thoughts were playing out, I think it will make all the sense in the world. And I, I, I don't know. Um, it's hard to tell if you could have gotten the same book with the same reach, if it was more organized. So it's it's kind of like it's a critique, but it's also it also is one of the things that makes it very special. Yeah, that's that's well said, man. Um, I have come up with the shortest summary in the history of Leatherbound. Are you ready oh, wow. for the summary for this book? Yeah, I'm I'm totally ready. Cheerful Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Ecclesiastes <laughs> with twice the smiles. <laughs> no, and, and what I mean by that is he's a. The title of the book is Orthodoxy. Mm. And when I, the first time I was recommended this book, I was like, really? That sounds terrible. You want me to read a book about something that is synonymous with boring? Because that's, that's what orthodoxy means. Honestly, I have no idea what it meant in, I don't know, somewhere around the year 1900 when he was writing this. But I know for me, orthodox is synonymous with vanilla. It's just mm. kind of like, yeah, it, it's, it's boring. It's traditional. It's something we need to grow beyond. And Chesterton uses this really cool analogy in the beginning of the book. And he says, I, I used to think that life was about going on this big, massive adventure and, and going somewhere. And he said, I'd set sail. And he goes, I, I went through rough waters and I went through the deep and I went through the battles. But at the end of the day, I wind, I wound up exactly where I started right back in the same faith. And he goes, does that make me any less brave? Does that make the journey any less courageous? And he basically says, I don't think so. And just to cap off the intro, I, I wrote down a little paragraph, a pretty brief paragraph um, from the very beginning, from the intro of the book that I'd love to read mm -hmm. you, man. Please. Com complete self-confidence is not merely a sin. Complete self-confidence is a weakness. Believing utterly in oneself is a hysterical and superstitious belief. And to all this, my friend, the publisher, made this very deep and effective reply. Well, if a man is not to believe in himself, and what is he to believe? After a long pause, I replied, I will go home and write a book in answer to that question. Yeah. This is the book that I have written in answer to it. <laughs> so, like I said, just classic pithy one-liners. Um, delightful. It, it kind of has a charming feel as you read through it. But yeah, man, I, hopefully that's good enough for an intro. If you got something to add, add it. If not, uh, tell me what our first point is for the day, buddy. No, I, I mean, like the only thing to add is that this book is, I think you hit the nail on the head and like Ecclesiastes at some points feels like you're almost 
following the ramblings of a wise man trying to explain something very complicated to you and not really knowing where to start. You know, yeah. uh, like like chapter three starts with the you know there's a time for weeping, a time for mourning, and it's like weren't we just talking about like all the concubines you had in the chapter before this? I'm confused. <laughs> you know, it's like and Chesterton in a lot of ways is smiling while he's doing something similar. Um, and it, this is one of the problems I think when we try, it, it's one of the problems. We have two problems here. It, you know, sometimes when we try to think that the world can be completely understood with our rational minds and that we don't act in the world irrationally all the time, um, then, then we lose sight of this type of thinking. Um, but also when we live in just the, I don't want to call it irrational, but let's call it the more imaginative, our more imaginative state, you know, we can lose the power of the rational and the ground that that can gain too. And it's good to have a balance. And I think Chesterton does that, although he definitely is living in a little bit, he's definitely a rambling man. You know, he is, he is going places. Yeah. So anyway, but if we'll, you need we'll... proof of that, literally just go look up a picture of him. Yeah. Not not very easy on the eyes. He look he looks like he was all over the place. Yeah, and yeah, yeah man, he is I guess that's frumpy is a good point. way to put it, right? <laughs> he is archetypal frump. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's actually Hunter something I'd like to add to our little intro here. Please. Is in an he he name drops Nietzsche. I think at least twice, maybe three or four times in the book, mm -hmm. and. Part of the idea of returning back to his roots. Part of the idea of what is good about orthodoxy is a contrast to the age we live in. And the age we live in is something that says you must progress at any cost and you must progress past where we have been and you must progress past what we have known. And Chesterton essentially is writing this book to say progress is good, but you have to have a foundation. And he's trying to tie Nietzsche down. At one point he says, I'm going to, I'm going to mess up the quote, uh, but he says something along the lines of, Nietzsche said that we have to move beyond good and evil, but if I'm trying to catch up to Mr. Jones and then I move beyond Mr. Jones, how can I catch up to him without turning around? Mm. And I thought that was such a good, such a good line. And I even think I got the word Mr. Jones, right? Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of the idea behind orthodoxy because honestly, Hunter, I think it does kind of need an intro in our day and age because mm. we, we've made incredible progress in 5,000 different ways, but we need to be careful that, in it's kind of like you're building a building and you think you can get rid of the foundation because you're on the 80th floor. Yeah. It's like, look how high we can come. We don't need that foundation anymore. And it's like, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know how dangerous this is. We have to go back to the foundation and examine it because we're going to have a foundation whether we like it or not. So what is it going to be? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's going to be really good. Uh, when we get to the second point, I've got a, I've got a lot to say on that there actually. Um, so that's, that's good stuff. Um, we're going to start we're going to start with a little bit of a lighter point. Um, one of the things I think that we do, Ben, if I was to tell you a story um, and it was a good story, it would capture your attention, right? Um, and you would say it captures your attention because it was entertaining or it was funny or it was, you know, taught you something you didn't know, or it was sad or whatever. And it's, to me, it's just quite fantastic uh, that you take all of that idea for granted, right? Mm. Much in the same way that you take for granted the fact that you experience the world with two hands and two feet, you know, it, it, like 
it's it's it that's not the way the world has to be experienced it's the way you were handed to experience the world and not a lot of people make that twist with it if that makes sense or take that step in thinking about it and yeah you what 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 why would why would a sad story get your attention you know why would you sit and listen to anything like that is is a really interesting question um and i think chesterton speaks to something a, a little bit like that um he talks about fairy tales uh we all know about fairy tales uh fairy tales are like what cinderella is about and you know the uh, what are those dumb kids that get eaten by the witch or baked into a pie hansel and gretel right hansel yeah you know yeah. <laughs> right and, and it's a good story it teaches you something about not getting baked into a pie and that's important um <laughs> Hunter, but, is that what you think the moral of Hansel and Gretel is? Don't yes. get baked into a pie? Okay. Yes. Yeah, you're right. And if you're telling me that's a bad moral, you're wrong. So anyway, <laughs> but but we learn a lot from those things. And we learn a lot from novels and stuff. Like the picture of Dorian Gray. Is that a fairy tale? Kind of. You know, it, it's kind of, of this bizarre story of what happens when you become obsessed with yourself, you know, um, and how you can lose sight of what you're actually becoming. Right. So that's kind of fun. Um, but I want to read this quote from Chesterton. Uh, where he begins to talk some about story and he writes, I am convinced with a certain way of looking at life, which is created in me by the fairy tales, but has since been meekly ratified by the mere facts. That is how I think why stories are compelling is because they, they are an expression of something deeper than we have. Uh, fairy tales explain to us the world that we do not rationalize. They explain to us the problems that we have and the lessons we learn that we cannot necessarily uh, connect all the dots for. And, you know, it, you might want to engage with the picture of Dorian Gray so that you can learn not to live a life of vanity, right? And consumed with your own self and who you can be with and things like that. Because... It's very interesting Oscar Wilde wrote that story, right? Because at the end of it, you might find yourself empty and without anything uh, and dead is, is, the, is the moral there. And you could say, well, is that true? And then you could say, well, yeah, you know, we see not necessarily that we, it depends what you mean, right? It's not necessarily that we see that happen and have empirical evidence for that, but we've definitely seen small events like that take place in our own life. We definitely know that, you know, if you want to treat yourself as the center of the universe, you will get yourself, right? And that may be it. So anyway, Ben, wh what do you think about that point? I actually, want to, I actually want to pretend I disagree with that point uh, yeah, just sure to see how you re respond. Um, with your best Because here, here's a critique, because I've actually made this almost exact point to, to some people that I know. And uh -oh. I, I would say the most common reply I get is, is something along the lines of, really, dude? Your Aladdin is this deep trove of moral truth that teaches me how to live life. No, it it's just a story that we happen to transplant our morals into because we're the ones writing it. It's not that big of a deal. So I, I think that's the most common reply. So I, what do you what do you think about that, buddy? Those are the same thing. Hmm. Those are the exact same thing. But but it does sound like you're saying that it is extremely significant, and my. And the people I've talked to that would disagree would say it's really stories aren't that big of a deal. Your friends They're are cute. disagreeing with the point and then trying to say it doesn't matter. They're actually not disagreeing with the content of the argument, right? And that's really a failure mm -hmm. on their part to recognize what's going on there. Um, and what I mean is that human beings, whether spiritual 
or biological, whatever data point you want to fill in there to make yourself feel more comfortable in that argument, have a way to communicate morality in something that does not require rationality. That's what's happening, and that's what your friends are admitting to. If that's true, and by everything that we can observe and know about our own lives and know about our own experience in those, in those moments, it appears to be true, then that's one of the most bizarre cultural gifts we have to pass on knowledge to the next generation, right? That's something that dogs can't do. That's something that dolphins can't do. That's something that octopus can't do. It's actually a, a, it's a way to learn things without experiencing them. It's a way to learn things that happen in the future without having to endure the pain in the present, right? And it's like, what you should look at them is, is go, well, you know, thank you for saying that and proving my point, but why don't you think that is significant? Like, that's what, that's, that's the real question, you know? I think that's excellent, man. I, I usually say something along the lines of, um, how, how frequently do you watch Netflix? Sure. That's a great point too. Because then I ask them to explain if they really don't think it's a big deal, then what are they doing? Exactly. Why do you spend so much of your time engrossed in story? When, sure. Like, why can you tell me what a Horcrux is? Like, like 90% of people you meet it, that are millennials on the street can tell you what a Horcrux is. And I think that was really well said, man. Yeah. Stories are this bizarre amalgam of morals that seem, and we've, I actually think I've said this before on, on this podcast. We probably have. We can say more somehow in stories than we can say without. It's why you teach your kids in story. It's why, because like you can tell your, you can read a children's book to your, to your child that says, don't lie. And that's a thousand times more effective than you looking at your kid and saying, don't lie. And why is that the case? Because one, it, it has so much going on. A story has cultural context. It has interpersonal relations. It shows why you should not lie in circumstances and it can show effects of the lie. There's so much, so many levels of complexity within a story. Like, dude, how many sermons have you heard on a parable of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Like so many. And why mm-hmm. can we tell, there, why, are, why can we preach so many sermons on a single parable of Jesus? Because somehow there's just incredible amounts of truth and it can seem so simple on the surface. Wow, that was some alliteration for your audiophiles out there. It seems so surface simple, but there's just something incredibly complex. Jesus can say that a dude threw some seed in the ground and we talk about it for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. I, I don't fully understand what's going on in the realm of story, but I know it's incredibly effective at distilling truth. And I love the respect that Chesterton gives to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Seems... Oh, it looks like you're going for another quote. Oh, no, no. I was just kind of getting it ready. That, that's great. And it, it makes a makes a ton of sense. I, I, I think, yeah. I mean, I th- even think now we haven't even said everything, right? And Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think that's the point to some extent is because you can't actually get everything by it. And it's a lot of the times I think it's you don't even know what you're trying to say. I think that's why we keep talking about the seed right? Yeah. Being thrown on the ground. I think it's why Jesus talked in parables because he knew if he was like to explain why we probably wouldn't get it, you know? And I think, I think that sometimes that wisdom that's hidden, right? Is when you can see the story and the wisdom that's in the story, right? Yeah. And then it's like, you can, when you can articulate what is in the parable, so to speak. And even then I think you do it grasping at straws. Um, so, um, 
but Chesterton kind of expands on this same idea and kind of shows it in this Christian context. Uh, he says the primary paradox of Christianity is that the ordinary condition of man is not his sane or sensible condition, that the normal itself is an abnormality. That is the inmost philosophy of the fall. And this is such a good point because Chesterton basically takes that whole idea of rationality and of that difficult and that, that intelligence, and he connects it right to the beginning of creation and says, you know, not to the beginning of creation, but to the beginning of the fall. When he says that, you know, remember when you guys ate the apple because you thought you could be like God and know everything? He's like, big mistake. You actually knew a lot before that point, too. And it's not that hmm. it's not that that um, may not be for our betterment, which is why I think God allowed it. But it I think it's I think it shows the same spirit that was motivating us then uh, continues to motivate us now, so to speak. So hmm. I, don't know, I might be taking us off track and or. Uh, getting ahead of ourselves. I don't know much. We, we briefly talked about our third point tonight, but I don't really sure. know what the second point is. No, go, but buddy. What, what you just said there makes me think about this, and I did. I just realized I didn't write down the quote, um, but Chesterton says something about... Hold on, sorry. Let me go back. Regarding your point about we have lost knowledge. In gaining knowledge, we have lost knowledge. The abnormal has become normal in a sense. And he writes about all of the reigning philosophies of the day. And this is kind of the danger of his big metaphor of being out to sea and away from his foundation, right? Mm -hmm. And he says something along the lines of, there's a billion philosophies for, me to pick in, for you to pick from nowadays. The masses have become completely placated. And it talks about this one guy and he goes, uh, he's a Marxist one day and a Nietzscheite. I remember it because he says Nietzscheite. Uh, a Nietzscheite the next day, and then he believes in Hobbes, yada, yada, yada. I'm sure he doesn't say Hobbes. Um, that was after his time. But the essential point is he has unlearned everything and now has no foundation and is out to water swimming around not knowing what to believe. So he just kind of wanders from one empty philosophy to the next empty philosophy, wondering what to get out of it. And to put a bow on all of that ramble of mine, that's why story is important story right. articulates the foundation that we operate from right and i think that's i think we might want to do the next little piece of that so to speak is when you say foundation and you see like that story speaks to that what is it speaking to and i think it's speaking to something mm -hmm. like a moral order right and like well if there's moral order there's a there has to be something that's that's either that moral order is either the foundation of the universe itself right um, or it's 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 a universal law, right? And then it's like, where did that law come from and why doesn't it exist? And the better question is, could that law have existed in a natural universe, yeah. so to speak? And then I think I think it becomes pretty clear that if it did occur in that natural universe, right, then it wouldn't be foundational by yeah. definition. It would yeah. be something arbitrary, right? Um, it might be the hard, fast rules that you have to live by, but it definitely wouldn't be real. I think that's kind of the way to think about it. And because we know, here, here's the thing, if we could prove, if we could prove that we did live in, that that moral order came from this universe that we live in, right, and that it was the hard order of the day, so to speak, and it was just arbitrary because of the universe we happen to find ourselves in, many people, when convinced of that truth, would find it unbelievably unjust 
unbelievably nihilistic and would attempt to end their existence upon discovering that truth or attempt to do mm. the most heinous acts they could think of, right? And so it's like, that's not saying everybody would. That's not even saying that some people wouldn't act nobly in those in those conditions. It's just saying that a lot of people would, and they wouldn't be wrong in that moment, right? They would almost be justified for taking it out on the horrible order of their, their existence, right? Um, which is which is why you don't necessarily want to think about everything rationally, my friends. Um, but we're, we're going to talk – I think this is a good point. This is a good jumping off point to our second point, which is the limits of reason, which you've heard us talk about a bunch on this show, uh, especially throughout the season. Um, Chesterton writes here, uh, the Christian admits that the universe is manifold and even miscellaneous, just as the same man knows that he is complex. The same man knows that he has a touch of the beast, a touch of the devil, a touch of the saint, a touch of the citizen. Nay, the really same man knows that he has a touch of the madman. But the materialist world is quite simple and solid, just as the madman is quite sure he is saying. The materialist is sure that history has been simply and solely a chain of causation, just as the interesting person before mentioned is quite sure that he is simply and solely a chicken. Materialists and madmen never have doubts. I see you thinking, buddy. Yeah, man. I Let me try to say this all in another way that is just over, overly simplified. If there's an element to faith in everything, and I, I know I'm now encroaching on our third point, Hunter, but if you want to believe in the naturalistic explanation for everything, if you want to take the most logical outcome at every single point, then you are going to wind up in the pits of nihilism. So let's, let's take every leading philosophy of the day. Let's say the, the Big Bang caused human life inadvertently, that mm -hmm. life evolved um, with no help from a god, that you don't actually have a soul, that you have built-in survival instincts that come from a long evolutionary process that has produced in you the survival for the fittest, mm -hmm. and now you are what you are, the, the only value to you is your biology and the fact that you have lived longer. In fact, saying that there is value to living is in fact a value judgment based on nothing. And what I love about Chesterton is he just goes right for the heart of that argument. And he goes, if you want to believe in that, that's fine. Have that life. But that sounds like a terrible life. At one point he writes, Mr. Maccabee thinks me a slave because I'm not allowed to believe in determinism. I think Mr. Maccabee a slave because he's not allowed to believe in fairies. The Christian is quite Same free to believe that there is a considerable amount of settled order and inevitable development in the universe, but the materialist is not allowed to admit into his spotless machine the slightest speck of spiritualism or miracle. And man, that's this is something I think about a lot because there's like a rise of people talking about spiritualism in today's mm -hmm. incredibly secular world and mm -hmm. world that's devoid of religion. People love the idea of, of being spiritual. The, the Buddhist faith has become inadvertently popular, whether people even know they kind of have faith in, in the Buddhist ideas or not. Mm -hmm. And it's just incredibly hollow. People are kind of trying to have their cake and eat it too. They want, they want to hold on to the idea that there's something special and unique to them, mm -hmm. but they don't want to have to answer to anyone for it. They want their soul, but they don't want someone who made their soul 
They want I think they need to their be soul. God. I think they yeah. need their soul. I think I think that's really what it is. I think it's like I think all that wellness and all that nonsense to some extent, not all of it's nonsense, but that wellness meditation and like self-care stuff is all based in the fact that like you actually have a soul and you actually do need to care for it. And you can't live your life denying that fact. And I, I think that's why people come to that crossroads where they see religion as fetters and chains and keeping them from living the life that they want to live. And they want to, and they also have their rational mind telling them that the world has nothing in it but material, right? And then they try to live their life according to that and find it impossible, right? Yeah. And, and find that they can't do that. And so they add spa days and they add five minute meditation in the beginning of the morning and they add uh, mindfulness and all this, all, all this additional stuff. And it's like, well, I would be, I would, I would have a much better time believing you if you acted like what you actually believe, yeah. you know? And I think people can't get away from that. Dude. And here's, here's something that I have been toying around with lately too. Why is mindfulness good? Um, cause it, it's not that we disagree with the fact that mindfulness isn't good, right? We, we agree my, that it's good to be mindful. Sure. But what makes that good? What makes the spa trip good? What makes all of these things good? It's. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I, I, I you finish your thought because I'm not, I, I have a couple of directions to take it, but I want to, I want to see where you're going with it. People take things that are innately good and have no reason why they're good. They just give them fluffy feelings. And what that's mm -hmm. doing is worshiping a God of happiness. And they don't realize they're serving some external thing. It's like, okay, well now my life is, uh, I'm going to meditate. So therefore I have inner peace so I can be a happier person. It's like, okay, so now you're serving the God of happiness and you're going to lay down because instead of spending more time with your kids, you're now meditating, right. which that's, that's a trade-off. And it all comes back to biblical ideas that mindfulness is a good thing. If you're mindful on the divine, hmm. A spa day is a good thing when you are resting and recouping from service. It's kind of like, it feels really good mm -hmm. to take a cheat day when you've been really healthy. Like right. eating a donut after six days of being just like e eating salads and steak boy. all week. <laughs> exactly. Being a mess boy. It, it feels mm -hmm. amazing because you freaking earned that donut. So I think people don't know that they get value out of things and never question why. Because mm -hmm. you kind of need a why to have value in anything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of that it's I think that we get, I think a lot of that we get hand waved. Well, it does a lot of good for me, or it makes me feel better, or when I do it, I just feel so much closer to whatever it is. Yeah. You know, and and I think there there needs to be a little bit more careful moral searching and what that means, um, and what exactly it is you're being brought closer to. You know, because yeah. I think people are, I think people are a lot more complex than they give themselves credit for. And I think they're a lot more explainable than they give themselves. Um, I'm sorry. I think people are a lot more complex than they imagine themselves to be. And I think they think they're much more explained than they imagine themselves to be. And I think really, I, I think really that verse that is the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it actually is the, one of the more profound things said about a human being discussing themselves. And I, I'm not saying that that's what that person is engaged in is wickedness necessarily, but more than likely it is. Um, and 
it, it's hard to know. And it would be, and it'd be good for them to know, even if it wasn't wicked, what the goodness in it was achieving. And, and what does that mean? But let's move on to this next page. Um, we've actually said this a couple of times, and I think this is such a, I've got a lot to say on this one. And I think it might be one of my favorite passages in the book. Um, but, but let's, let's discuss this. This chapter is purely practical and is concerned with what actually is the chief mark and element of insanity. We may say in summary that it is reason used without root, reason in the void. The man who begins to think without the proper first principles goes mad. He begins to think at the wrong end, and for the rest of those pages, we have to try and discover what is the right end. We've been essentially making that point, almost with yeah. the same words, um, and possibly even to both our credit for um, having read the book. Ha! Um, I have a story to tell you, Ben. Um, Ooh. When I think I mentioned this a while oh, back Hunter, on the we podcast. We need a story time with Hunter audio yes. jingle segment intro. Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> um, I think I mentioned this on the podcast a while back about a moment when I was going through some of these thoughts and the books we were reading and dealing with them. And for a moment, I was like, I honestly cannot find the argument out of this. And I am sitting here thinking about this problem for days and days and days. And now I'm just stuck. Um, I, I, I don't know if it was days, but let's just call it a day. And I was stuck in my room for an hour wrestling with the idea. That idea was something along these lines. Um, we've talked a lot about how the universe created from design and the universe created from evolution would not in actuality be the same, but it would look extremely similar. Yeah. Um, the reason for that is it, it is a little unintuitive, but once you wrap your brain around it, it's, it's obvious. Um, both would appear in creating a designed species fit for its environment. The designer would have done so by creating the exact thing to fit the environment and the uh, evolutionary framework would have only let life live that fit the environment, right? And so the only things that are left here at the end of where we can actually see it and be cognizant of it would be life that seems to suit its environment. So it would be very difficult from us at this point to tell the difference. Um, the really quick a lot... way to say that is the non-theistic evolutionist will say we have evolved to and the either creationist or theistic evolutionist will say we were designed to. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I've always loved this idea from Jordan Peterson where he talks about our a priori principles, right? And I thought that was really interesting because it was, I thought those for him all the time were something he put into like the myths and the stories of human culture, which then I, Made I'm going to be a douche and interrupt you for a sec. And just to, sure. just in case, um, a lot of people don't speak philosophy very often. Um, a priori and a posteriori are two different types of knowledge that are frequently discussed in philosophy. A priori or a priori simply means knowledge that you innately have inside of you, things that you know without needing to be taught. Two plus two is a priori knowledge. A posteriori, a posteriori, Wow, now I can't say it. A posteriori, goodness, knowledge, is knowledge that you have to be taught, knowledge that you gain. For example, the combustion engine operates in this manner, fill in the blank. So, mm. Hunter, loving what you're saying. I just wanted to give that so people can couch what you're saying. Sure. I actually think 2 plus 2 is not a priori knowledge, but that's me. I think 
I think you learn, I think you learn, um, I think there are like three way, three worlds essentially that you live in. And now you're, now you're making me go somewhere weird. I think you live in the physical world, the world of matter. I think you live in the linguistic world, which is something akin to the world of spirit, which is what we communicate our thoughts, ideas, and emotions through. And I also think you live in a mathematical world um, because mathematical concepts are not really real concepts. They're imaginary. They don't exist in reality. For example, can I never totally, can we totally ignore the podcast for like the next couple of minutes and just talk about this? I think this is interesting. Yeah, we can. Um, the, 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 the easiest way to prove this to yourself is when was the time in nature that you ever saw the number one, not in text, like not in something man-made like an apple. Like you saw no, one apple, no, but you never did no, no, see the no, number. No, 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 The number. Never. Right? The, right. It's, it's, it, it's not something that exists in nature. You could know the difference between, say, a apple, but not, and maybe like apples, right? And But you need the actual language to describe one apple or anything like that. Like it's actually a, math is only possible when something is being observed by a conscious. I think, I mean, that's, me? that's the argument of if, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, doesn't make a sound. No, it, it's different. It's different. It's, 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 it's like saying that you, you can't, um, the world actually doesn't exist. See, the sound still exists. That's what I'm trying to get at is the sound, actual physical vibrations exist in the physical world when that tree falls. Okay. They're a reality, right? But the concept of one See, versus two versus however many there are those objects exist but the concept does not which I, is I'm like i'm not sure that i can separate in the framework you're putting forward i'm not sure i can separate the physical and the mathematical i'm fine with the linguistic separation but i don't yeah. know about the physical and the mathematical because just i agree that there isn't this number one sure. anywhere in nature but the sides to a square are always going to equal 360 degrees whether there's someone to measure the square incorrect. Oh my that's gosh, only, angles. The, the angles, oh, that, I hate you. No, 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 it's wrong. It's only true in planar geometry. It's not true in three-dimensional geometry. Well, three-dimensional geometry has its own rules. I, I don't know what all the angles equal but, within a cube. But, but, but slow, slow down, this is the whole point. Which okay. dimension do you live in? Three. There you go. So the third-dimensional world breaks the rules of mathematics in a weird way. Almost, uh, okay, I see what you're saying. You but see what I'm saying? At the like, same time, the three-dimensional world still follows those rules. The three-dimensional world still follows those rules. Because, for example, side cubed gives you the area of a cube. And that area is that area, whether you can measure it or not. Um, yes and no sometimes. But, okay. but yeah, um, it, I, I don't, I'm at the limits of my knowledge here, so I'm going to leave the rest of that alone. I know there are some things in geometry that we take for advantage. We take... I'll put it this way, just to put a good cap on everything we're saying here, because this is not my expertise. Um, but there, there are good things that we take we take for granted in geometry that don't map perfectly onto our world, right? Into into the space that we live in, and really, math is a concept used to explain things. Um, the 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 issue I think you're having here is an issue that a lot of people 
have when they first kind of like wrestle with the concept that there's there is no um there is no um math there is here's the thing it's it's the difference between math and counting to some extent right um right like hunter i never grew beyond the counting phase right sure so i wouldn't sure Sure, but I mean, like, think about like multiplication and um, your your tangents and and all this nonsense that kind of gets derived. Um, math is actually a abstract upon the real world that allows you to describe the real world better than the real world exists, right? And like, yeah. it's it it actually provides a whole nother way to see the world this is another thing too and like just where you might be like well i'm not really i'm not really willing to give away the fact that like um the number one doesn't exist in the in the real world fair enough what about anger you know what i mean but like would anger be anything without the words to describe it but you wouldn't know? that be jumping into the linguistic world that you that's, that's my point that's my point is like even in the physical world you can have anger you can see it right before your very eyes you can see someone's face reddening you can see everything there but but there's also something more going on there than you're aware of right and it's and you know you can you can discuss that everything and it all those worlds touch each other at all the same all the time right right like i can throw a brick at you and you'll get mad at me you get what I'm trying to say, and so uh, like no, Hunter, because we're on Zoom right now, and all you would do is break your computer. I would laugh sh- at you. Sure, 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 sure. But but it's they are imaginary concepts used yeah. with the no, real I, world I, to I better describe the real man. world. Sorry, I, I do see what you're saying. Um, okay, I, I still have some issues, but I think we gotta get back to our show. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Um, I, I think, no, thanks I think... for jumping into that for me, man. That was really interesting. Yeah, I think people, um, I think people, um, struggle with the concept, um, uh, more than they should, so to speak. Um, but it's, it has more to do with the world that you live in than it has to do, um, than it has to do, uh, with the idea what I mean by that is I think had you lived in not such a rational time, so to speak, the idea of divorcing um, math from the physical world would seem less of a stretch. If that, Mm. if that's one way to put it, Um, it's, it's quite, it's quite not the way that people naturally think about things. Um, And uh, without, without the language to describe 12,311 apples, you know, that's that's just apples as far as you're concerned in fact that's that's how most other animals are pro actually act around stuff like that like wolves don't save right they can hold 33 pounds of meat in their belly right like they don't actually think about they don't really most everything doesn't think about um uh the future the future is one way to think about it, but it's really more like only two states exist, hunger and satiated. Ah. You see what I'm saying? And like a human being is able to distinguish between the two um, and have levels in between and know when it's better to ignore the, the impulse and when it's better to store up and, ha- and even plan that out, right? And so like that all exists in a world that's not available to animals, so to speak. Um, all right. Back to this thing. Um, so 
Uh, oh, I've actually flipped the page. I'm going to go back for just a second. We may, in summary, that is reason used without root, reason in the void. And so when I began to wrestle with like um, some a priori um, discussions that Jordan Peterson had, I always thought that those existed in something akin to uh, something akin to something found in like the tr the myth and the story that we tell ourselves. And I would think like the best collection, the best expression of those ideas was Christianity. And I always took a lot of comfort in that. And then after spending a lot of time uh, studying and learning what he said, and I think taking his personality course in particular, he actually roots those a priori, a priori's in personality and says that it's your really? personality that gives you the a priori way to see the world. And I was like, Oh, that's not what I thought when you meant what I meant when you said that. Mm. And so I began to kind of like have this spiral because it was like, well, if the world isn't necessarily, um, if the world, if the way I see the world is all conditioned by my personality and it's impossible for me standing here to know how the world, um, actually is based on what I can observe. I can't, dis I can't discern for myself if it's evolved to or designed to, then what am I, are these a priorities actually nothing? And like, I wrestled with that idea for probably an hour, like literally just staring at my floor going, I can't, I can't think through this. And, you know, I was trying to do it. And it's one of the scary things been about trying to deal with a bunch of these ideas. And my wife comes in, I explained to her, um, what was going on and what I was trying to figure out. And then it just dawned on me uh, through that explanation, just like talking through it with her. It was like, if it's the case that it's evolved to and not designed to, then it's reason in the void. And I, I think I literally said that to her. Right. And I was like, that's it then. Because it's like, if it doesn't matter, if there really is nothing there and it's just all evolutionary, then it's just the void. There's no foundation there. There's no concrete thing. But if it's reason and design, then there's, then there's something to it. And so faith is the belief that, hey, there is something at the bottom of this, right? It's not just nothing. And then I read Chesterton. And then I read that paragraph about reasoning in the void. And I mean, that that's wow. why we do what we do on this podcast, so to speak, right? Is Is not to toot our own horn and not to... Um, do this, but to, but to actually have those answers, right? To actually find them out, to see it through, and then to like grab and take hold of it. And it's like, it was probably one of the scariest moments in my life as far as my faith is concerned. And I was so happy that A, I didn't let go of it, that B, I had my wife there, and that C, I get the confirmation in this text that hey, you're not the first person to, to grapple with that and, and find the answer, so to speak. Um, and, you know, so it was just Oh man. Really cool, man, that's that's like the whole title of the book. Like that's the summation of the book, Orthodoxy. Mm. That's him. Mm. That's the whole journey away. Is him saying like it turns out people have already been here. I had no idea, and I think that's kind of like the classic young person. Like what the young person has to do is question his roots because how can he know that they'll hold him up as he grows. And you have to look at where you've come from and, and critically examine it. Because what if where you're coming from is bad? 
Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I remember as a, as a younger man, I was very fond of criticizing America. I'm born, was born here, grew up fairly wealthy, fairly wealthy existence by the world standards, right? Never went hungry. And it was, it's so easy to find the flaws. And yet, as I got older, I started going, holy cow, this is actually an amazing place. People have already been here. People have already thought through the, the things I'm thinking. And no one thinks it's perfect, but it's, it's doing pretty decent. And yeah, man, when, when you say the, the bit about having a foundation, my first thought is that journey that he takes out onto the open ocean. And there is a point in everyone's life. And I, I know this is true for you. I know this is true for me. Um, as a person of faith, where you decide to examine your foundations and you leave home, as it were, right? And you start to ask the scary questions. And it's only after you've done that can you fully come home. But here's the best part, is that once you come home or once you arrive at wherever the destination is, maybe, maybe orthodoxy isn't your home like Chesterton. Maybe you are off in no man's land and you find yourself in orthodoxy wherever you end up. The beauty is that once you are there, you can essentially go for a journey on the land and you always have something under your feet and kind of like Hunter was saying like this yeah dude that's why we love doing this show and it's not scary anymore I remember when I first started reading massive books like this I I was fearful for my faith and I again I think we've said this on the podcast I still remember after reading Dawkins and you went that's it and it was just this cool moment that oh wow as people with a foundation looking at all of the things that tell us that there is no such foundation is just Mm -hmm. absolutely asinine Mm -hmm. and it's such a depressing way to live your life because as chesterton says in this book everybody has faith have you gone and done all of the historical research to understand how evolution occurred? Have you done all of the research to understand how what we think is a soul emerged in man? Or are you having faith in people who tell you that that happened? I'm not even saying that it's bad to have that faith. I'm saying you have that faith. That's my point, is that everyone has faith. And we love to lull ourselves into this scientific superior mindset that, oh, uh, well, now that we're in the 21st century, we know what no one has never known. It's like, first off, you know next to nothing. The only mm-hmm. things that you know are because you've been privileged. Uh, I don't even like that word. It's become so political. But you've been so incredibly blessed with all of these material advances and advances in the science that you feel like you know things. But at the end of the day, you have faith in something. And what are you going to put your faith in? That's the big question that this book kind of demands that you ask yourself. And that's why he name drops Nietzsche. He's like, hey, are you going to put your faith in the thing that thinks it can go beyond good and evil? Are you going to put your faith in the thing that says that what we've viewed as wrong for a millennia is right? What? Are you going to flip morality on its head? He, he's going, what do you think you're doing? Where are your foundations? Because they're somewhere. Yeah, I love that. Um, Man, that was a rant, no, huh? No, it was good. It was really good. Um, I think... I think we're going to do this. I think I'm going to read the last three quotes here um, and just let them hang. Because I think one of the things that's so great about Chesterton's book is he also shows you what happens, you know, the bounds of faith, where faith can go, and like the the farthest reaches that it can have and how it can actually um, move past uh, your reason, 
And I think I think we're just going to do that because I think some of these uh, quotes are just they, they do so much by themselves that they don't need much explanation. And it might even be good for you to like have that world of yours broken up just a little bit and expanded. So here we go. But if he guessed that the man's heart was in the right place, then I should call him something more than a mathematician. Now, this is exactly the claim which I have since come to propound for Christianity, not merely that it deduces logical truths, but that when it suddenly becomes illogical, it is found to, so to speak, an illogical truth. It not only goes right about things, but it goes wrong, if one may say so, exactly where the things go wrong. Its plans suit the secret irregularities and expects the unexpected. It is simple about the simple truth, but it is stubborn about the subtle truth. And we will go to our next quote here real quick. That one is beautiful. But remember that this text is too lightly interpreted. It is constantly assured, especially in our Tolstoyan tendencies, that when the lion lies down with the lamb, the lion becomes lamb-like. But that is brutal annexation and imperialism on the part of the lamb. That is simply the lamb absorbing the lion instead of the lion eating the lamb. The real problem is, can the lion lie down with the lamb and still retain his royal ferocity? That is the problem the church attempted. That is the miracle she achieved. And then finally, which I think is probably the hardest one and one of the most insane ideas to believe, but one in your Bible is this, and it's, it's going to be a doozy, so hang on. Christianity is the only religion on earth that has felt that omnipotence made God incomplete. Christianity alone has felt that God to be holy God must have been a rebel as well as a king. Alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the creator. For the only courage worth calling courage must necessarily mean that the soul passes a breaking point and does not break. In this, indeed, I approach a matter more dark and awful than it is easy to discuss, and I apologize in advance if any of my phrases fall wrong or seem irreverent touching a matter which is the greatest saints and thinkers have justly feared to approach. But in that terrific tale of the passion, there's a distinct emotional suggestion that the author of all things, in some unthinkable way, went not only through agony, but through doubt. It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. No, but the Lord thy God may tempt himself. And it seems as if this was what happened in Gethsemane. In a garden, Satan tempted man. In a garden, God tempted God. He passed in some superhuman manner through our human horror of pessimism. When the world shook and the sun was wiped out of heaven, it was not at the crucifixion, but at the cry from the cross, the cry which confessed that God was forsaken of God. And now let the revolutionists choose a creed from all the creeds and a God from all the gods of the world, carefully weighing all the gods of inevitable recurrence and of unalterable power. They will not find another God who has himself been in revolt. Nay, the matter grows too difficult for human speech, but let the atheists themselves choose a God. It will find only one divinity who ever uttered their isolation, only one religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. That, why is that last idea important? Why is it important for your faith to wrestle with that idea, Ben? Oh, man. The profundity of what Eloi, Eloi, Lema, Shebechthani, or something along those lines. I'm not, I'm not going to get the Aramaic right at all, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is, is what he's getting at there at the end. If, if you were confused by that idea of what do you mean God appeared to be an atheist? That's what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's something worth sitting around, sitting down with, because it's the same question of why did Jesus pray to have the cross taken away from him in the garden of Gethsemane? 
why did Jesus seem to lose his belief in God for a split second? Did he actually? Probably not. Did he do that symbolically for us? Was that something real that happens when God rips himself apart? It's, it's something significant, but I, I, man, it's tough. But I think the kernel of truth that I would pull out of that is if, and, and there's a million, I don't remotely pretend that I'm going to sum it up, is that sin is a chasm of endless depths and it can seem confusing and painful but there has been someone who has paid that price and you will never understand the depths of the thing that you have been freed from i I think that i think you're you do not understand what it costs god until you understand what he's saying there you know you do not understand what your sin costs god yeah you don't understand what you were given and it's not nothing but the blood of Jesus <laughs> son yeah. of you, right? Yeah. It's not that. It's it's something ferociously, maliciously was paid there, you know, with all the judgment that you deserved um, against something eternal. That should make you sweat even more, mm-hmm. right? What does it mean for something to be something eternal to be punished you know and you need work out your salvation with fear and trembling i think there's a reason why it's said like that you know and you you have so much to be grateful for um i i I say this and i think it's going to get me in trouble one day um it's bizarre that we don't live in the universe that Islam teaches us we should. We should live in a world where God just decides one day that, guess what? You did everything right and you're going to hell, right? Like, just my, just my whim today and how I felt. That's the world we should live in, and we don't. And we live in something far beautifuler and something with such a sweet, sweet loving Savior, you know? And I think, I think it's completely undeserved. It's completely an insane gift. And... You got to understand what Chesterton says there at whatever level you can manage in this life to understand what you've been given. Um, so there, um, that's all Man, I got, buddy. I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I think we're, we're right at time. That's a perfect place to wrap up. Hey guys, thanks for, thanks for tuning in again to leather bound. We are a podcast that Hunter likes to say is about some pretentious stuff. Um, smart you can about maybe about uh, stuff. Uh, never say words. You may be able to find us on social media. I have no idea. You can find Hunter on the socials at Emotional Carl. You can find me absolutely nowhere because I'm a ninja. Please tune in for the next episode. And we're going to continue talking about how it is better to be righteous than it is right. Seriously, guys, we love doing this. We had these, we were having these conversations anyway. So this is just a blast for us. We love that you're listening. Um, Yeah. And we love doing this. Write us an email. Um, if we have an email at this point, just go search the Googles. So in, in the words of Ben Polk, good night. Sleep tight. I hope the bed bugs, alligators bite. I don't know.